One of the themes of this series is that when things are hard, we often feel alone. When, when we're active doing the right thing or trying to do the right thing, when it gets hard to do the right thing, when it feels as though the odds are stacked against you, one of the, the things that happens is we feel incredibly alone. So, I, I've, we're studying the life of Elijah, who's one of the really significant characters of the Old Testament. He, he is one, in fact, we'll look at his, his, his role not only in the Old Testament and the New, because he's such a significant personality. But one of the things I, I've been shocked by is how much every story about Elijah emphasizes his loneliness, the fact that he was always outnumbered, the, the fact that he felt so alone. Because when you live in a context like we do today, when, when it seems as if being a follower of Christ is under constant um, criticism at best and alienation and worse, when, when it feels as though who we are is in many ways not acceptable any longer, it's, it's easily easy to fall into the trap of thinking, well, we're just alone. There's nothing we can do. There's no hope. And Elijah is a man who, who lived in, in a low point in the history of the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom of the ten tribes who always struggled with, uh, there's not a single king that didn't fall into idolatry in the northern kingdom. But he, he lived at the time when the worst of the worst was in control and when things were particularly bad. And the worship of Baal included infant sacrifice, it included temple prostitution. It was an incredibly evil period, and that's the time in which Elijah stood for God. And so, he's a wonderful example. Last week, we saw him appear on the scene. We saw him confront the king Ahab, who Scripture says is the worst of the worst of the worst, and, and declared that there would be a famine, a drought, and that God would withhold rain until Elijah told him it would come back. And then we see God building Elijah's faith as He provides for him through the feeding by the ravens and by the provision supernaturally um, through the widow and her bread that never ended. Today we see the high point, literally and figuratively, of Elijah's ministry because this is the great duel on Mount Carmel. Uh, Mount Carmel is a, actually a range of mountains. It, it goes up to 1,700 feet over sea level. It's a beautiful part of Israel. It's a significant part of Israel, and there are two sites that are often associated with the events of this chapter, but it is one of the major events of the Old Testament. So, if you'd turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 18, you, we'll look together at the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel. If you don't look it up, I'll read it to you. First, I want you to notice in the first 15 verses that hostility is high. Hostility against those who worship God is incredibly high. After a long time, in other words, since the beginning of the drought, in the third year the word of the Lord came to Elijah, quote, go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. And the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab had summoned Obadiah. This is not the Obadiah of the prophet. This is probably another Obadiah. The name means servant of the Lord, so it's, it's a natural Hebrew name. 
who was in charge of his palace. And Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord, while Jezebel, Ahab's wife, was killing off the Lord's prophets. Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hid them in two caves, fifty in each, and had supplied them with food and water. By the way, when we get all pessimistic, we convince ourselves that no one's doing anything. We especially will decide that leaders, people in positions of authority must not be doing anything. And so, we condemn pastors, and pastors deserve it, but we, and we condemn government leaders. We, condemn, we start condemning people because why isn't anyone doing anything? Can I point out that nobody knew what Obadiah was doing? See, we, we don't know what God's doing. We don't know what God's doing. We often act as though we are the center of the universe, and if we don't see it, it doesn't happen, right? But the reality is, and, and it's one of the themes we'll see, especially next week, that oftentimes God is at work in ways that even His spiritual people don't believe. And, and so we dare not fall into despair just because we don't see what we want to see. Because God's still God. His job description has not changed. His power and authority is still resident in Him alone, and therefore, we dare not despair because God's still God. And Jezebel had killed uh, Old Testament prophets, but this dude named Obadiah, who happened to be apparently number two in the kingdom, takes a hundred of them and puts them in two caves. There are 2,000 caves in Mount Carmel, by the way, so this is not an unreasonable idea. I don't know if they had Batmobiles, but they had Prophetmobiles. Um, I got too much sleep. I Let's keep going. Ahab had said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs and valleys, and maybe we can find some grass to keep horses and mules alive so we'll not have to kill any of our animals. Even the king is losing animals to the famine. So they divided the land that they were to cover, and Ahab going in one and Obadiah in the other. And as Obadiah was walking along, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him because of that camel suit and bowed down to the ground and said, Is it really you, my Lord Elijah? Yes, he replied. By the way, and the Mount of Transfiguration, the apostles know it's Elijah. I'm thinking he wore a name tag all the time. Hi, my name is Elijah. Uh, right on his camel hair coat. I'm just got to explain it. Yes, it is Elijah. Go tell your master. Elijah is here. Verse 9, what have I done wrong, asked Obadiah, that you're handing your servant over to Ahab to be put to death? As surely as the Lord your God lives, there's not a nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to look for you. And whenever a nation or kingdom claimed you were not there, he made them swear they could not find you. But now you tell me to go to my master and say, oh, by the way, Elijah is here. I don't know where the Spirit of the Lord may carry you. When I leave, if I go and tell Ahab he doesn't find you, he will kill me. Yet I, your servant, have worshiped the Lord since my youth. Haven't you heard, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel was killing all the prophets? I hid a hundred of the Lord's prophets in two caves, fifty in each, and supplied them with food and water. And now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here, he will kill me. He's a little annoyed. That's the way I read this. Notice this defense. Really? Really? Anybody ever feel that way? Really, God? Really? 
Verse 15, Elijah said, as surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will present myself to Ahab today. Hostility is high. Obadiah literally, the number two guy apparently in the kingdom, fears for his life if he announces Elijah's presence and he disappears. Verses 16 through 29, and the odds are really bad. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah, and when he saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, O troubler of Israel? A better translation would be, O man who put a hex on Israel. Uh, O man who has ruined everything. I've not made trouble for Israel, Elijah said, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's command and have followed the Baals. One of the things that's interesting as a pastor, you'll meet with someone and say, my life is hard, God's just not, and, and then you say, but you've chosen to absolutely disobey God in this area of your life. Might it be that this is the Lord's discipline? In other words, one of the interesting things happens is, is we sometimes will live in disobedience, and when we live in those consequences, then that reinforces our disobedience somehow. Somehow we make that as justification for our disobedience. Uh, but Hebrews 12 says, whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. Uh, his, his desire is to turn us away from that by bringing difficulty. So when difficulty comes, one of the things we should ask is, Lord, what, what do I need to learn? And I recommend learning it as fast as you possibly can, right? Elijah presented himself, and the famine was severe in Samaria. No, I'm in the wrong verse. I keep doing this in this passage. Verse 18. I have not been troubled for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and followed the bells. Now summon the people from all over the Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table, big table. Uh, Asherah's prophets don't apparently appear. Asherah was the goddess. Baal was the god. There were 450 prophets for Baal, and those are the ones who show up. So the, the odds were 450 to 1. Did you catch that? 450 to 1. Do you ever get into a little um, pity party because it feels like you're outnumbered? Uh, scripture says if one person has God, he's a majority, Right? And Elijah proves that. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. And Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Notice that the people want it both ways. Pluralism has always been the primary religion in the world. In other words, It's not that we necessarily want to reject the God of the Bible. It's just we want lots of gods according to what's convenient. Uh, Israel was, uh, I mean, Christianity was attacked in the Roman Empire, not because they had the God uh, of the Old Testament and, and His Son, Jesus, but because they rejected the other gods. 
In other words, we have always had the tendency, not so much as at least initially, to reject God as try to embrace other gods. Now, we don't build idols today like that. We don't take wood or stone and build idols. Uh, we, we have other kinds of idols. Anything that we look to, to do what only God can do, which is give our lives meaning and joy, anything that we look to, to do what only God can do is an idol. So, in our society, we look to our country to provide and make us okay. And, and our country can become an idol. We, we, we make love or sex an idol. Somehow it's supposed to meet our needs in a way that only God can. Uh, we, we, we find all of these other things, you know, are stuff. You know, if I just had more stuff, then everything will be okay. The problem is you get more stuff, and what do you want? More stuff. The reality is we shape different idols today that, that crowd God out of the role that only He can have in our lives. And, but, but we hold on to God because we don't want to hurt His feelings, right? And we might need Him sometime when things get rough. So, Elijah says to the nation of Israel, look, either Baal is God or Yahweh, the God of Israel, is God. You can't have it both ways. There's only one sovereign. There's only one king. There is only one God and true God. And you, you can't, I love the word, uh, it, it could be translated um, dance between two opinions, um, stumble between two opinions. It, it seems to indicate kind of an awkward shuffling, and the word will be used again. It's a real unique Old Testament word, and he makes a point with it later. And notice what the people say, nothing. Why? Because they have no defense. So Elijah said to them, verse 22, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, because the other hundred are in our cave, but Baal has 450 prophets. So go get bulls for us, and let them choose one for themselves, and let them cut it into pieces, and put it on the wood, set on fire, and I will prepare the other bull, and put it on the wood, but not set a fire to it. And then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, He is God. Baal was the sun god. So this was a fair test. It was in his repertoire of things. And God, Yahweh, often used fire to demonstrate his power. And the, all, the people answered this time, what you say is good. This will be entertaining. Verse 25, Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first. And since there are so many of you, call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. And then they called the name of Baal from morning until noon. Oh, Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And so they danced. Same word. Waver between two opinions. So the prophets danced. It's the writers doing some fun stuff here. Around the altar they, altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder. Surely he is God. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. Now, the NIV has, has cleaned this up a little bit. Um, one of the phrases the ancient Hebrews actually believe, he said, maybe he's gone to the bathroom. Um, literally, he's saying, I know he's a big God, but, you know, gods have needs too. He may have needed a nap. 
There's a little sarcasm here, just a little bit, just teensy, weensy bit of sarcasm. Yet, but what's he's doing? He's, he's taking ideas from the myths surrounding Baal, which showed him to be very human-like and showing just how non-God-like they are. Because when we make gods, you know what we do? We make them like ourselves. Uh, the very idea of God of the Old Testament is He is holy other. He is holy, separate, and different from us. But when we make our own gods, we make them like ourselves. Why? Because what was the original temptation in the garden? You shall be God. That's our ultimate goal. So he's saying, well, I know your God is, you know, He could be busy. Or he could even be dead. They actually had, a, had some myths that when, it, when they had a drought, he died temporarily. And since they had been in a drought, you know. So they shouted louder, and they slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until the blood flowed. Isn't it interesting that the idolatry required the blood of the worshiper? Judaism and Christianity, it's the blood of the sacrifice that brings life. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice, but there was no response, no one answered, and no one paid attention. Uh, see, the heathen gods were capricious, they were grossly self-interested, they were just big versions of us. In contrast, the God of the Bible, who is all-powerful and all-gracious and all-kind and always purposeful, and all that he does. But we persist in idolatry. We, we persist in pursuing things apart from God because, well, that's what everybody's doing, right? We get caught in the flow of things. It's just, you know, it's just so simple. simple. So, so you, you, you see incredibly difficult times, and you see Elijah as a single voice to defend what's right against horrible odds. In verses 30 through 46, we see how it all ends. Then Elijah said to the people, come here to me. And they came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. We don't know why that altar was there, whether Saul built it. There's all kinds of ideas of why there would have been an altar there. And Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, your name shall be Israel. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seahs of seed. And he arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. And then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. And at the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Notice how prayer is significant in the life of Elijah. He, he stopped the rain, according to James, by, even though he was a man like us, by earnest prayer. And here, he accomplishes before God a visible demonstration of prayer as the source of power of God. It's interesting. So, he prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Notice that God is relational. The God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament is always relational. 
Idols are transactional. The world's substitute for love is always transactional. You do this for me, and then I'll do this for you. The relationship with God is not transactional because that transaction already occurred when Jesus died on the cross. Our relationship to God is not rooted in our living up to His expectations. Our relationship to God is rooted in His character, His grace, and the sacrifice of His Son. So, he doesn't pray, oh, Lord, you reward those who do things for you. He says, oh, Lord, you are the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You, you are our God. Let it be known today that you are the God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. So, answer me, oh, Lord. Answer me so that, why? So that these people will know that you, O oh Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. What is the ultimate purpose of this big thing? To work in the hearts of the people. To cause the people to turn back. To demonstrate God's power. Now, I, if you're like me, my first thought is, Lord, it would be cool if every once in a while you did something like this for us. You know? Bring fire down from heaven. That would be cool. Now, personally, I'm grateful he doesn't bring fire down from heaven because on more than one occasion, I would have been the recipient of the fire, right? And probably maybe some of you would as well. Um, In other words, Scripture says that God withholds his judgment on the world by demonstrating his grace so that we might have an opportunity to turn to him that the Holy Spirit uh, holds back the wrath of God uh, to give people time to come to faith. And, and that's an encouraging thing. But, but w- the truth is, we've, we who are here, probably every one of us sitting in the pew, maybe a few exceptions, we've seen God answer our prayers. We've seen God work in our lives. There, there have been moments in our lives when He has intruded in a way that was so elegant and so clear and so monumental that, that it, it, it reshaped our way of thinking. What happened? We forgot about it, right? We neglect it. We, we effectively say to God, yeah, I know that, but what have you done for me lately? I have a new prayer today. That's why... Gratitude is such an important discipline in the Christian life. Gratitude is a way that we keep before our thoughts all that God is and all that He's done so that when things are difficult, we fall back into confidence in Him. It strengthens our hope, right? Because there's, there's always going to be bad things. Jesus Himself said, in this world you'll have trouble. Uh, there will always be difficulties. We live in a broken and fallen world. In fact, we Americans have gotten so spoiled, we're shocked when things are hard. And, and, and throughout the world, they look at us and say, really? Life is always going to have difficulties. Uh, the question is, do we have eyes that see and ears that hear and minds that remember all the ways that God has intervened in our lives? Do, do we readily spend time in gratitude so that we view life through the lens of God's goodness and faithfulness and love? Or do we view life through the lens of that list of things that we're not happy with. It's fundamentally one of the biggest decisions that you and I make. That's why I've said many times, one of my favorite hymns 
is count your many blessings, except for I hate the tune. It sounds like a can-can. Count your many blessings, see what God has done. But you never thought about that? I could just see the church ladies in the choir. And I lose it when I do. But the reality is, I know I'm seeing faces too. I can't believe he said that. But the, but the truth of it is so powerful that, that we learn to face the heartache and the difficulty and the context. And it's, it doesn't take away the reality of the heartache, but it gives us a proper perspective when we see all that God has done. So the fire of the Lord, verse uh, 38, falls on the sacrifice and everything burns up. And while people saw it, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah commanded, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. And they seized them. And Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered them there. Two things. Uh, the people don't turn. They celebrate this event, but you don't see a, a true revival among Israel at this time. Uh, they, you know, they won the football game. They cheer. They put on their T-shirts, yay God, but then they go back the next day and forget about it. And God brings judgment on the idolatrous priests because the Old Testament law required that anyone who brought idolatry into the nation of Israel had to be a victim of capital punishment. Verse 41, so Elijah said to Ahab, go eat and drink for the sound of heavy rain. So Ahab, Ahab went off to eat and drink. Isn't it interesting? Ahab knows that Elijah's God is God. Did you catch that? Elijah says, by the way, it's going to rain. God told me. So what does Ahab do? He says, oh, it must be going to rain. I'm going to go do what Ahab said. He knows who God is. He just rejects him. So Ahab went and, and Elijah climbed the top of the Carmel and went down to the ground and put his face between his knees and said, go and look toward the sea to his servant. And the servant went up and looked and said, there's nothing there. Seven times Elijah said, go back. I'm really convicted about our prayer life. As a people about me individually, I am really convicted that we way too often think it's up to our energy rather than God's power, and it's demonstrated in the way we pray. Elijah was a powerful man, but he was a man of prayer. And on the seventh time, the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and get down because the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds, and the wind rose, and a heavy rain came, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel, and the power of the Lord came upon Elijah, and he tucked his cloak in his belt and ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. Against all odds, Elijah demonstrates who God is. Against all odds, God demonstrates his power over the idols. But that begs a question for you and me. First, what are the idols competing for our lives. What have you given the power in your life that only God should have? Is it the opinion of others? Is it personal success? 
Is it just personal comfort? Do you hope the government will make you happy? What has taken the place of the sovereign God in your life? By the power of Scripture, it will not meet the need. But like the people of Israel, we often keep pursuing it even though it never meets the need. Why? Because it feeds our flesh by, by nature. It, it allows us to, to live the way we want. What are the gods in our lives? Do we feel alone in our service for God? Are there times in your life when it just feels like you're the only one at work? in your family, in society? Do you feel alone? The story of Elijah shows that even when there's no visible activity, God is yet at work. Um, it's interesting, the, the, the Presbyterian Church sent missionaries to South Korea for decades, decades, decades. And then all at once, I think in the 60s, a huge revival erupted in South Korea, and these massive churches took up, and now South Korea is sending missionaries all over the world. And it's funny, you know what people said? Wow, look at the way God moved overnight. The reality is that we don't know what God is doing, but, but God is always doing. Our calling is to be faithful to the battle He puts us in. So that's the next question. What's the battle that you've been called to? Where, where are you and I to take a stand? For some of us, it's, it's political involvement. For some of us, we need to get involved in the society and stand for what we believe God is calling us to do. For some of us, it's, it's to speak up in our neighborhood and, and to love the folks in our world around us that, that need someone to care. I mean, there, for some of us, to serve the weak. There are all kinds of ways, but the fundamental question is, what's yours? And I'll tell you frankly, for some of us, at unique times of life, it's just surviving, getting up each day and thanking God that He still loves us even though it's hard. But each of us is given challenges, and each of us is called to respond to that challenge. So my question to you is, what's yours? Elijah is a demonstration that even though we might feel alone, in our challenge, and even though we may not see what God is doing, when we're faithful, when we're grateful, uh, when we keep looking to Him, He yet does His work, even against all odds. I'm concerned that so much of what I read about the body of Christ is we sound so hopeless right now. I mean, you read stuff, and it's just Christians are their hairs on fire with hopelessness. You know, we've gotten sucked into all the stuff in our society, all the clamor and stuff about how bad it is and how bad your neighbor is and how bad everything else is. It's just hopeless. And I'm thinking, God's in control. We can't be hopeless. We just need to be faithful. We need to be in prayer. We need to do what we're called to do, but then we trust the one who defeats everything. What's your calling? Are you grateful?
Please pray with me. Father, thank you that even when we don't see you, you're well at work. And thank you that in, in the midst of hard times, sometimes excruciatingly hard, you still are there. Uh, Father, thank you that you love us based on your commitment to us through your Son, not based on our doing the right thing all the time. And thank you that you choose to use flawed people like us to do your mighty work. Lord, give us the courage to keep responding to you even when the odds are bad. And give us the joy to see you work even when it feels like we're doing so little. Lord, make us a people that is so grateful for who you are and what you've done that our attitude is shaped by you and the gospel and not the circumstances around us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.